The Lord is great, isn't he? And uh, we cannot sing that enough. And uh, the psalmist certainly gives us um, heaps of evidence that, that he sung that himself. And so we can sing it too. Because the Lord is great, we're going to take up his word and read his word together. You follow along. And if you open the scriptures at 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, now we're going to start at verse 16 and read right through to the end of chapter 9. So chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, commencing at verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame and the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honourable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. And because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. As we've been making our way through Second Corinthians, we find that Paul gives two whole chapters to the subject of financial giving. And having spent three messages in these chapters already, I'm going to come into land today, okay? And some of you would be thinking, thank goodness for that, because this subject is maybe real uncomfortable. Well, if it's the case, maybe it's because our motive and attitude towards giving has been challenged. And if that's the case, that's good. But these messages, these chapters are not about making us feel uncomfortable They're all about changing us into obedient, grace-driven givers. That's what they're there for. And so as Paul continues his address to the Corinthian church on this matter, you'll remember that they were procrastinating on this promised and planned giving to the poor saints in Jerusalem, whom they didn't even know. The collection on their part had gone cold so to speak. And so Paul reminds them of this good work that they had started and even desired to do a whole year ago. As you know, this church, and as we've been looking, as we've been going through verse by verse, this church had gone through some difficult times uh, where false teachers had come amongst them and had steered the church away from the true gospel and their relationship to the Apostle Paul fell on hard times and he became collateral damage in the relationship. But genuine genuine revival had taken place. Praise the Lord for that, eh? genuine revival had taken place and a heart of love for the gospel and the apostle Paul had been restored. This is the news that Titus brought back that we saw in chapter 7. There was restoration, there was revival and so what Paul does there, he picks up where they left off. And he challenges them to prove the sincerity of their Christ-like love by completing their promised giving to the needy saints a year earlier. So the challenge had gone down, the apostolic request had gone down, the expectations to give had gone down, it had been all put to the Corinthians. Praise the Lord that they did respond, even though we don't actually see it in this chapter. They did respond, but you need to go to Romans chapter 15 to find that, because you'll see there that Paul and the team were taking the gift, and it mentions Achaia, which is Corinth. They did respond obediently. That's the big story. But we see here that Paul is not finished yet. There were some more vital details to deliver 
as there are two sides to the coin of this grace giving. Two sides to the coin. And in this section, right up to the end of chapter 9, Paul flips the coin, so to speak, and what he does is he highlights necessities in our giving that need all of our serious attention. And they are vital because if not heeded, this is what will happen, if not heeded and taken note of and followed and used as a model, if not heeded, God and his people will be robbed and the giver will be robbed of God's promised blessing. You got that? And so the first vital necessity that needs to be in place is that careful supervision of our giving needs to be put into action. We see this in verses 16 to 23 of chapter 8. And as I looked at this section, I was impressed with the emphasis and detail, as you have followed along this morning as well, that the Apostle Paul places on the administrative procedures of handling this collection that was about to take place. He goes to great detail and emphasis. And I believe because there is, there is emphasis here, we do well to heed the example set. And so the first thing that we notice is that this was not Paul's baby. You hear that, that? It wasn't Paul's deal. It wasn't a one-man band, as it were. This was not a one-man mission who usurps his personal ego and passion on others for giving to Jerusalem. No. What we see here is Paul has a team of men who were equally passionate, like Titus, to take up this collection work. Paul confirms this to the Corinthians. He says, Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. That's what he says. In other words, this was not Paul's deal alone. Titus was also very earnest. As a matter of fact, he was as earnest about this as Paul himself was. But there's more to this team than Paul and Titus. We see that there are two others, two unnamed brethren. Wow, these guys go down in the records of eternal word of God, but not having any names. But that's okay. The first we see in verse 18 is a man who has a descriptive title, as we can say, but this is far better than any name. And this is what it says. Whose fame and all the things of the gospel has been spread through all the churches. Imagine having that record written on your resume by God himself. So he was a man well known in the assemblies of God's people right throughout Macedonia and possibly even further afield than that. And this man had spiritual credibility. He could be trusted because of who he was and how he had proved himself. But also Paul makes sure that his appointment was made by who? Who appointed this man? Was it Paul? No. What do we see here? But was appointed by the churches. He was appointed by the churches to travel with the team. What for? For this gracious work. We see that in verse 19. Then finally in verse 22, there is this other brother. And what tag does he get? This is what he gets. He was a guy who had been tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. 
So what we have here is a delegation of three carrying out this, this, carrying this letter of 2 Corinthians to the Corinthians from Macedonia. Probably came, they, they came from probably, uh, Philippi more than likely. They went down to Corinth carrying this letter and these delegates were going on ahead of Paul. Paul was going to follow them a little bit later. At that point, the money the Corinthians had said that they would give to the poor hadn't been collected, but they were sending these men to remind them so that they would collect it. That's the plan. But why on earth was Paul making such a big deal of the qualifications and trustworthiness of this collection team. Why all the emphasis? Good question. Simply this, folks, and here is the lesson of this whole section. Paul was covering his back and making sure everything in relation to ministry finance was squeaky clean and could stand the test of any scrutiny. That's what he was doing. He was being super careful in the way the Lord's money was being administered. His priority was in all this to glorify God in the way that this money was to be handled. He wanted no wriggle room for any to think or suspect that he or any of the team were pilfering money for their own personal gain. That can happen, right? So Paul goes all out to glorify God in this collection project. We see that in verse 19. By both how? Honouring both Lord and men with this highest credibility that he could muster. So how could he do this? How did he do this? Well, first of all, he chose a team to handle the money. The old saying, there's safety in numbers. There's a lot of truth in that. There's safety and accountability and plurality. And secondly, he chose a team who were spiritually qualified. These guys were proven. They were not novices. Titus was his partner and fellow worker among you, it says. And the two others were, they were messengers of the churches. The word messenger there comes from the word apostle. In other words, sent with a mission. They weren't apostles, as it were, where they hadn't seen Christ, but they were messengers of the churches. They were appointed men by the churches and I love that at the end there, they were a glory to Christ. Imagine that being on your resume, being a glory to Christ. Verse 23. So any financial or secular qualifications that these men might have had were completely peripheral to them first being spiritual men of God of absolutely credible reputation. So Paul sets us a good working example here, right? Here we have a model of how to handle your money at NCC, which we endeavour to follow, by the way, to be above reproach and to be open to any scrutiny. Imagine, for a moment, if I was the only one who took these bags into the back room later and counted the money, and then it was my responsibility, all alone, to bank it. That would not happen, right? You would not allow me to be so foolish to put myself and yourselves in harm's way. 
That would be an explosive situation where suspicion and potential disaster would hang over us all like an ugly fog, if that was the case. You see, Paul was wise enough to know that he and the team needed to be clear of any potential suspicion and also that no person is exempt from yielding to temptation. And so what does he do? He sets the standard high. He puts safeguards in place. If only churches and missions and organisations would follow this model. Paul understands that this gracious work needs to be seen as honourable and so he goes all out to see it is that. Just a word of exhortation here, folks. Be very careful about supporting missions and organisations and even some ministries that are headed up by one man especially in the finance side of things. How many times have you heard of funds being pilfered or perhaps being conned out of congregation by the persuasiveness of one man and where he becomes very rich? He might go and buy a new jet plane or he might buy a new house or whatever. It happens. It's happening. Or perhaps even church staff who have no accountability and safeguards in place to keep them above reproach. It happens, right? So be very careful. May I say at this point, praise the Lord, that we have such honourable procedures at place here in NCC. You know, in all my years, I have only ever seen, all my years here, I have only ever seen in the financial area a deep commitment to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And to be above reproach and to honour the Lord's name in this very area. And I'm praising God for that. So with this detailed resume, spelling out the credibility of this collection team to the Corinthians, Paul launches in one of his famous therefores. This is how it should be. This is what it is. This is what's happening. These men are not out to con you. I'm not out to con you because this is how it's all set up. Therefore, this brings us to our next point. Therefore, we see this in verses 24 of chapter 8. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting in you. I've headed up this little section with the willingness and eagerness of our giving. This therefore here in verse 24 introduces Paul's final call to the Corinthians for the generosity to show itself. In other words, Paul is coming into land also on this giving challenge by trying, by tying together all that he has confronted with them in chapter 8. And Paul is excited about the Corinthians and he has much confidence in them. We learnt that back in 7, right? Amidst all their failures, amidst all their, their, their nastiness and their words of accusation against them, Paul still had confidence in them. In them in the sense that he knew that they were the Lord's people and that what the Lord had begun in them, he would bring it to completion. He had confidence in them that they would produce the goods fitting for repentance, even in the financial area. 
So he's excited about this. He knows that they're going to follow through on what they committed. And he is convinced of the readiness. That's confidence, right? Oh, how he loved these people. Even though some of them were not very easy to love. He loved these people and had confidence of the work of God in them. He asked that collection team to be ready by the time he gets there so that they don't embarrass themselves. In other words, what he wants is that collection team, when they go down there and speak to them, he, he wants them to gather together all that they had committed a year earlier so that there might not be no shame brought upon them. And then finally, he challenges them to look at their hearts to make sure that their motivation is still to give bountifully. And in no way are their hearts and their giving to be hindered by greed or covetousness as we have here. Last Monday evening, the leadership of this church met and as usual, the agenda demanded that Steve here, our treasurer, give a full disclosure of our financial status. We were then, in written form, were given and discussed as well the total amount of money in the bank. We were there, told us the total offering for the month of July and the average weekly offering over the whole year. We were then told about the expenses that we'd, uh, we'd attracted and paid. Folks, I want to brag about your generosity. Paul did. He boasted about the generosity and the bountiful gift that had been promised by the Corinthians even though it was a year before. And I want to brag about your generosity because over this last year, you know, what we have done is we have met, you have met all our expenses with some to spare. You will hear the details of this at our AGM. Praise the Lord for that. Okay? You know the need. You have the budget figure, if you like, on your bulletin each week. And you have given generously. The Corinthians, they knew the need. They saw the need that was in Jerusalem. And they committed themselves to giving generously a year prior. There was a hiccup for a year, as we've discussed already. That's why Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 9, it is superfluous. In other words, it's unnecessary. It's over and above. You already know about it. It's not necessary to make this need known again because you know all about it. He knew they were willing. He knew they were eager. They were fired up and ready. So much so, so much so about this giving and their desire to give that their zeal inspired and fired up other churches in the area to give as well, namely in Macedonia. In other words, they were the leaders in this special collection for the poor and needy in Jerusalem. And so this willing eagerness of the Corinthians church gave Paul reason to boast. Praise the Lord for that. To boast before others about this promised bountiful gift. We see that in verse 5. But sadly, procrastination set in, coinciding with this rebellion against Paul that was set on fire by the false teachers. And now a year had passed. So rather than take things for granted, rather than take things for granted, what Paul does, he sends this delegation, this collection team, on ahead to prepare them, to get the ball rolling. 
to have this year-old generous promised gift ready for them when Paul arrived. He did this, obviously, to allow them physically and spiritually to prepare. Remember, these believers at Corinth were repentant, right? They were repentant. They turned around and, and, and they were in love with the gospel and Jesus Christ and, and, and with Paul all over again. But Paul treaded carefully. He wanted them time to prepare. He wanted them to, to reconsider the year-old promise and allow their giving to come from hearts that wanted to liberally bless others rather than be tainted with tight-fisted greed. That can happen, right? That can really happen with our giving. You see, because we can easily have good intentions about what to give. We can easily have good intentions. We can say, well, this month I want to give this amount. Or next month I want to give that amount. Or I would love and I'm, I'm going to give. But when the crunch comes, when we have to dig in our pockets, what can happen is covetousness or tight-fistedness kicks in because we start thinking about what maybe that money could buy us. That's what happened. And so Paul didn't want that to happen. He wanted the same desire, the same willingness that was there a year ago just to pick up and carry on and drive their giving. Our greatest encouragement to give is that our giving pleases God, which is bountiful giving. A giving that longs to be a blessing. Someone summed it up like this. If our giving is to be bountiful, it must be a spontaneous activity of love and an uncalculating gift of generosity. I need to challenge myself, and may you challenge yourself. Are you a procrastinator who keeps putting off what you know God would like you to follow through on? Is there hesitation interfering in your giving? Do you view yourself as being exempt from giving bountifully because of financial circumstances? Lord, increase our faith. Remember the widow? She gave bountifully. She gave all she had. And he had two mites. Is your giving selfishly governed whereby you rely on others to fill the gap that you should be filling? And finally, is your giving driven by willing, eager generosity? Let us always be mindful of the supreme giving model of our Lord Jesus, right? We had this last week. We saw this in, chapter, in, in, in verse 9 of chapter 8. And it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The last verse of our reading today was, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We're sung of God being indescribable this morning. And the gift of God is beyond our description, but God in his grace has allowed us to understand in a measure something of the beautifulness and the loveliness and the magnificentness of his gift The eternal Son took on upon Himself humanity and was obedient to His Father 
and went all the way to the cross to die for undeserving sinners such as we. He who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. That's our lot, folks. How can we be tight-fisted? How can we allow covetousness to hinder our giving? This brings us to the final point of highlighted in these last few verses. And we see this in verses 6 to 15. You know, attached to this administrative attitude of our giving, uh, Paul emphasizes an aspect of giving that, that I believe many believers, including myself, often and can choose to ignore. Maybe it's through ignorance or maybe it's blatant choosing to ignore. Well, it will be blatant after this because you're going to learn something about it, right? No excuses. We choose to ignore it primarily because of our lack of faith in God, by the way, who promised, what does he promise? He promises to bless those who give bountifully out of a thankful heart. Now, you may have just skipped over all this before and just sort of not read it with any intent or purposeful understanding. And what Paul does in this section, he tells us of the blessings that God promises in response to bountiful giving. The first one is the blessing of God's love. Now, wow, you might say, yeah, but sure, wow, God loves us all. He loves us all. He doesn't love Peter here any more than he loves me and vice versa because we're all children of God. He, he, loves, us, he loves us all the same. Surely that's where it is. Now that is very correct in that general sense. But here we see that there is a special blessing of God's love promised and it is promised to who? It is promised to cheerful givers. You see that? And a cheerful giver is likened to a farmer here in our section of Scripture who is wise and he sows his seed generously knowing that this will produce him a good return. I have first-hand experience with this because I have been a farmer on occasions where I have been a miserly farmer thinking that I could take some shortcuts and sow a minimum amount of seed and get a reasonable crop but it all fails. I have to follow the instructions. If it says five kilograms a hectare, it means five kilograms a hectare, not 2.7 kilograms a hectare. So the farmer who is stingy and only thinks about the immediate sows sparingly and will reap nothing or next to nothing as a crop. Of course, we have ancient Near East imagery here. The farmers would go out and harvest, right? They would harvest their field of corn or their field of wheat. And there they would have all that corn and that wheat stored in their barns, enough to feed them, but also enough to keep for seed for sowing the following year. And so what the temptation was to do would be, wow, look, I've got this a ton of grain here, this can kind of keep me for a year and a half and so I don't have to sow very much. I can, I, I can eat more than I need to sow. You know how it goes? But they end up going hungry because they don't sow enough seed. They only think of the immediate rather than the future. And so in other words here, keeping up with the image, a cheerful giver is not stingy giver. He's not one who begrudgingly gives a bare minimum. He's not one who only gives because he feels he has to. 
A cheerful giver is a believer who from the heart joyfully and gladly and purposely gives her or her offering of money to the Lord's work. That's what it is here. That's what, it's, that's what the picture is all about. And the blessing that is promised to such a person is that God loves a cheerful giver. The blessing that flows from God in response to being such a, such a person, such a giver, is a special portion of love from God. In other words, that person becomes a special object of God's love. Well, I want to be blessed like that, don't you? To be a special object of God's love. You might think, yeah, but I am, but I'm already saved. But wow, I'm greedy, I want more. Don't we want to know the Lord Jesus and know God more and more? That's part of our sanctification and become more and more like Christ. Cheerful giving is one of the roads. No doubt this special love declares itself in a number of different ways that we would not otherwise know or ever experience. And I wonder if that is why there are so many unhappy believers. Believers who are not content with their lot in life or where they're at. And even spiritually, they go here and there and they're, and they're never content. I'm wondering why. Maybe it's because they're not cheerful givers. Haven't learned that. One thing for sure, the special blessing of God's love is that, you know what it will result in? It will result in giving God praise and glory and blessing from a worshipful heart like we could never bless God otherwise. Do you want the special blessing of love? I assure you do. Well, it's only promised to cheerful givers. Then in verses 8 to 11, we see that God's promise is blessing of abundant generosity. You know, as God promised the unique and a special love to cheerful givers, he also promises abundant generosity to such givers. This is another one that we kind of shy away from and, well, well you don't want to go down that track, you know, because I may get in the wrong motive and I may end up being a, a prosperity theology teacher. Just hang in there and listen for a little while. But the context here is financial. It's all financial in chapter 8 and 9. And so this abundance needs to be seen such as such, right? That is, he promises, see verse 18, he is able, in other words, he has the power to supply such givers all they need and more. In other words, a cheerful giver will have everything he or she needs and supplied to him by God. Why? So that they can splash out on themselves and live lavishly. That's what it's all about. No, it's not. No, it's not. You see this at the end of, end of verse 8. Here's the reason. So you may have an abundance. What for? For every good work. You see that? This promise of God's generosity to cheerful givers is not what prosperity teachers would have you believe, folks. It's not about a financial blessing so that you can decadently indulge yourself. No way. It's a blessing from God whereby he makes all grace abound to you. That's what it says. Where cheerful givers are given the sufficiency in everything. In other words, the wherewithal, the means to continue, the means to carry on. 
cheerful givers are given an abundance for every good word, every good deed. Why? Verse 10 tells us of the reason. It reinforces this. For sowing and harvesting, for more sowing and more harvesting. That's not what it says, but that's what it means. In other words, God is generous and will always provide the financial wherewithal to cheerful givers because those are the ones who will give and give and give and keep on giving. You get the picture? They are the ones who will increase what it says at the end of verse, uh, is it 11 there? Yeah, in the end of verse, they're the ones that are going to increase the harvest of righteousness. The end of verse 10. So it's not about getting some wealth so that I can enjoy. It's God supplying all that you need because they're the ones who won't be tainted with covetousness and tight-fistedness, but they will just keep on giving and keep on giving and keep on giving. And it's going to increase God's work, His righteousness. They're the ones who will use God's abundant generosity for the work of God's kingdom for every good work, in other words. God promises to bless cheerful givers with the financial means so to continue being liberal in their giving to the Lord's work. Cheerful givers, what does it say in verse 11, will be enriched in everything for all liberality. There it is again. How many times does Paul have to say this, but in different words? For all liberality. I wonder if we really believe this, folks. I wonder if we really believe this. Do I believe this? Do we take God at his word and cheerfully give? Or are we driven by fear of not having enough to make ends meet? If that's the case, we lack faith in God's promises here. His promise of generosity sufficiently supply the need of a cheerful giver. Oh, how we need to pray that the Lord would increase our faith. And lastly, we see that the cheerful givers are a blessing to others. You see, folks, when giving is as it should be, everyone is blessed, right? The receiver, the giver, and those who watch on. You know, it really hurts, doesn't it? And you would have experienced this when you go out of your way uh, and give a gift to someone, no matter what it is, and you receive little or no thanks in return. It does hurt. But how true it is, the opposite, is when thanks is expressed, how true it is that your heart is warmed, and then immediately it makes giving so much more joyous. In other words, what Jesus said, and it's recorded in Acts 20 and verse 35, what Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Obviously, he knew what he was talking about, right? Well, here the anticipated general giving of the Corinthians, it was already producing a blessing. It hadn't even been given yet, but it was already producing a blessing. A joyful thanksgiving to God from Paul and his team. You know, that's what was coming from Paul and his team. They They were blessing God for this anticipated gift that they were going to receive from the Corinthians. And the team was so blessed. And so what did they do? They blessed God. But blessing continues in that when this gift is received by the Jerusalem saints, they too would praise God and exalt him for moving these saints in Corinth to be so generous. 
You know, it's this giving that the Corinthians gave, this money that they gave, this abundant blessing that they provided, was not only a blessing so that it would, because it would uh, put food on the table. Paul mentions that, verse 12, fully supplied the needs of the saints. It wasn't only about paying the bills and putting the food on the table, and that is a real blessing. It's an immediate blessing, because you're not hungry anymore, at least for a few days or a few weeks anyway. But also this giving was such a blessing to the people that it overflowed into greater blessing. Verse 12, through many thanksgivings to God. God loves our thankfulness, folks. He really does. He really, really does. He loves being thanked for his blessing no matter what it is. These people, what it says here, they would glorify God because of the Corinthians' faith and obedience. We have that in verse 13. You know, I saw this in Zambia when I was there a, few, a month back. You, you, you folks had a, had a, had a collection. 2,600 Australian dollars I took over there to buy Bibles and bikes for them. People we don't even know. They never knew us. They don't know us. We don't know them. Wouldn't know them from a bar of soap in colloquial terms. But through that common bond in Jesus Christ, we were able to collect money and we lovingly gave it to them. And you know what the blessing was? I heard those dear saints whom I wouldn't probably recognise even if I saw them again. Because they all look the same. (laughs) Giving thanks to God for the saints at New Community Church in Adelaide and blessing God because of your generosity. That's a blessing, right? That warms your heart, right? This is what happened. This is what was going to happen with the Corinthians. A soul-stirring blessing it is to hear saints open their hearts and thank the Lord. I often wonder, you know, sometimes we have share times here in the morning. Anyone got anything to thank and praise God for? I want to jump up, but I've got to keep down. You hear my voice enough. I wonder why sometimes there's a bit of a dearth. I want, to, I want there to be a race to stand up and say something that should be right. And if we're really thankful and want to bless God and thank Him, for, there's a million zillion things that we can thank Him for. We, we can thank Him for His providential dealings, His saving power, His Word, His Son, His Spirit, His promises, His grace, His mercy, His heavenly home. You name it. Why are we so quiet? We are so blessed by others when they glorify God and give thanks to God. I love it when I hear people express verbally their thanks to God for whatever it means, whatever it may be. We all want to be blessed by hearing your true thankfulness to God. The final blessing was something that the Corinthians and the Jerusalem saints would enjoy. They'd never had this before. This was something brand new to them. You see, the Jerusalem saints now had a bond with the Corinthians like never before. Another thing was, in Jerusalem, they were all saved Jews. They were religious people. But they were being saved out of the bondage of their religious legalistic system and they were saved to Jesus Christ. And here over in Corinth, mostly Gentile pagans. And never the twain would meet prior to that. But here, through this gift, 
The cultural barrier could not stand in the way of this grace-given gift. This was the tool that God used passing between one to the other where there would be a bond of intimacy and togetherness and unity. What a blessing that is. See how we can be a blessing to others by our giving. And we say, why is that? Simply this. Because the foundation of this grace giving, it began with God. It began with God. That's what we have in the last verse. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Folks, if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to forget everything, everything that I've said and just dwell upon this last verse. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Ask yourself, what is the gift? And I'll tell you, the gift is his beloved son, Jesus Christ. What have you done with him? What are you doing with him? Do you trust him? Do you love him? Do you long to worship him? And come to church and, and sing songs about him? And talk to others about him? And, and do, is he such a part of your life that, that he kind of, he rules and reigns your life? Everything you do, whether it's your work, your home, whatever, it's kind of, it runs through this grid of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that how he is? Because if he isn't, you need to think seriously about whether you belong to him or not. Because this is an indescribable gift. He was given by God to be your saviour. And God commands you to repent, to turn from your sin and trust him because he is the only way of salvation. He given, God gives abundantly and blesses all those who believe in him with eternal life. Let us praise and thank God for his indescribable gift. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus. Lord, there are so much that we can thank. We have sung of indescribable and amazing and and our longing to thank you. And we do so this morning. We thank you for the love and mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his obedience in going all the way to the cross. And Father, it is through him and in him that we long to be more like him. And so help us increase our faith, Lord, so that we might know what it is to give bountifully. We long to be cheerful givers. Help us in this, Father, we pray. We thank you for giving what you have given to us materially. You have given us an abundance, such an abundance. Help us, see, help us see it that it is all being given to us by you. And it's not for ourselves, but for yourself, for every good work. And so, Lord, take us to our homes in safety. We pray now a blessing upon each one of us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.